prospects today. Um, so a few people have asked about the Sakai quizzes for my lectures. Um, the human development lectures have their own quiz. And that's under Sakai tests and quizzes. And it's called practice quiz human development. But there's a little glitch with that one that someone pointed out. For the first eight questions, you have to answer Denver 2 questions. And the Denver 2 form is given to you at the beginning of the quiz, but then it disappears when you go to answer the questions, which is really annoying because you need it to, or it helps to answer the questions. So a couple of solutions would be to take a screenshot, put it up in the corner, use your, your PDF from the lecture slides that show the Denver, or to open two windows where you have the Denver open in one so that you can answer the Sakai questions with the Denver right there next to you so that you can see the different milestones and ages. And you can move the age line for the infant depending on what age you're given in the question stem. Okay, So it's one form, but you will have to move the age line with your ruler, with your fancy visual perceptual skills. You can just imagine a line, um, but to answer those first eight. And then there's other quizzes for what we're what we always call the complex brain functions. So emotions, language, memory, consciousness, sex in the brain, those are all the complex brain functions. And there are some quiz questions under the practice quiz section for complex brain functions. There's one and two. And um, so the, uh, later in the term when we get to language and memory for the next exam, there are some that are relevant for language and memory, but there are some that are relevant for emotions and sleep and sex and all that, and those are in the complex brain functions. So just want to make sure you knew how to quiz yourself um, from the, and material from these lectures. So now I'm thinking about stress. Anxiety, stress, fear, all great stuff. So to get you thinking about stress and why it's relevant for physicians, um, this is probably old news to you, but stress can impact your health. How do we know that? Um, in patients with CAD, the risk of an acute myocardial infarction in the short period of an, after an anger outburst is doubled. So anger outburst, emotion, physiological arousal can increase the risk of a myocardial infarction, a heart attack. In the months after a death of a spouse, mortality from all causes is increased, okay? So simply being in a state of grief, a state of depression, of negative emotion, can increase your susceptibility from, to a range of diseases. These are just random facts, but they're, I mean, they're all true. The rate of defibrillator firings increased by three in the month following the World Trade Center attacks in New York. Okay, so essentially, the, the people who were already susceptible, had some heart disease, some heart problems, had even more immunocompromised after the World Trade Center attack. And chronic work-related stress, so just low-level chronic stress over time carries a two to three times higher risk of cardiac events, especially, and this is key, when people feel they have little control over their work environment. So perceived control gives us a state of, um, it helps us down-regulate our fear response. 
So why did I show you those silly images earlier after I scared you with that movie? Well, I didn't scare you. Most of you thought it was silly, but some of you got scared. And the reason I showed you those images is because simply giving people coping strategies for dealing with an increased stress response give them a sense of control. If, mice, if you give mice who you're shocking in a fear conditioning experiment the ability to push a lever and stop the shock, they will retain their extinction memory better. So if we have a sense of perceived control, it not only reduces the strength of the fear response, it actually helps retain the extinction memory. So that's important because perceived control, giving people coping strategies, ways of managing, because we can't always make the stresses in their life go away, right? But giving them some tools to manage their stress gives them a sense of perceived control. So although we'll go through the intricacies of the stress response in the, in the lecture, we will finish by thinking about some mechanisms for controlling the stress response, which is a lot of times the only thing you do when you can't, can do as a physician when you can't fix all the problems in a patient's life. So what do I mean by stress? It is absolutely nonspecific. It's such a broad term. It means any challenge to the survival or integrity of the organism. That can be running, okay? Running is a stressor. It challenges your body system. What's our homeostatic standpoint? At least mine, leaning back on the couch, chilling, right? So that's a non-stress moment. When you, do, when you run, you're stressing the organism. So we prefer, we like to be in a state of homeostasis, but we challenge it and we know how to recover from challenges. So running is a bit of a challenge, but we know how to recover from it. Um, any kind of cognitive, studying, exam, all of these are stressors. They can be um, sociocultural stressors. So having repeated um, hits over time, like certain minority groups who might be targeted in countries like the Rohingya in Malaysia. And so they have repeated stressors because they simply can't just live a normal life. So there might be repeated hits in the, from the culture that you live in. Um, things that essentially throw you off balance, throw your organism's state off balance. So we like to be, like I said, in a state of homeostasis. We have set points for all our different organs. They have like some, a set point they like to stay in, but anytime you have a stressor, it throws it off. And then the response is to try to get it back in line. So we have an array of defensive, adaptive mechanisms to try to come back to homeostasis, to come back to our set point. That's the stress response. Now there are two terms that were introduced by Sterling and Iyer, and these are older terms, but they're still used. Allostasis is the process of maintaining homeostasis. So that's essentially, we're just getting stress all day, all the time, middle stressors, and our body responds and we try to maintain homeostasis. That's called allostasis. Then, here's the problem. Here's where physicians get involved, and the body starts breaking down is when we have allostatic overload. So that's the key word, because allostasis is normal. We can't live or function without being thrown off our set points, and our body adapts and, and responds. But allostatic overload is when there's just too much stress, and our stress response system is on all the time for too long. Okay? That's allostatic overload. I want you to... Think about what's likely to be a scenario for every one of you in the room. Some of you just had this last week at MSRI. So, <laughs> yeah. 
What state of stress do you need going into an exam? Medium, yes, yes, that's great. Medium. But there is a caveat. So, every one of you was right for this question, and I'll tell you why. For the most part, according to the Yerkes Dodson law, our, a certain amount of stress is good. We need a little bit of epinephrine, norepinephrine to get our brain going, get our body going to perform, right? A little bit of stress is good. Too much stress is bad. That is the Yerkes Dotson law. Now, you probably already know that. All of you feel that, know that, but now I'm giving you a name, and you will use this name again, and you will sound really savvy when you're talking with groups of people. Oh, that's the Yerkes Dotson law. It, you, it's, it's a good one to know. We tend to perform better under moderate levels of stress, but there are two corollaries to that. Corollary one, when it's a new task, something novel, then too much stress is really not good. You can't learn a new task. You really want low stress when you're learning something new. Okay? So you learn best under low stress when it's something new, a novel task. So when you go to your clinical rotations and you're learning thousands of new tasks a day, just remember, it's better to be in a low stress state performance of well-learned tasks. So if you're really good at something, you've done it a lot, you're kind of bored, unless you have an audience, right? And then you really want to stand in front of people and show what you know. That is a well-learned task, something you've done a lot. And so you need a little bit of juice to get you going. So people who are really good at something, they want to have a little bit higher arousal to have more optimal performance. So it's not just that moderate stress is good. Sometimes if you're really good at something, you might need a little bit more. Like a, a, an athlete who competes in the Olympics might do a little bit better if it's high stakes, right? They might push themselves that little bit further. But someone who's just learning something, they have one or two or three, maybe five people watching them, and they freeze and they can't learn. That's me. I can't learn when I have anyone <laughs> watching. I need quiet focus when I want to learn a new task. Okay, so all of this goes through, guess which organ? the brain, right? The brain interprets stress and responds to stress. Now this takes us back to our emotions lecture and the fear learning, okay? So we perceive things, right? And, and that's based off of our history, our own conditioning, our life experiences, and also some prepotent biological tendencies. Most of us were, are born with a fear of heights, and when we're babies, we won't walk right over a cliff at some point because that kicks in, because we have a fear of visual cliffs. So some things are, are, we're kind of born with, but most of the time we interpret stressors in the environment through our brain, and that can be um, you know, serious stressors like trauma, abuse, environmental stressors, or major life events. And all of that may or may not trigger the stress response, the fear response, basically, in this case. And then that will trigger fight or flight, um, sometimes some behavioral tendencies to manage that increased stress. So I don't know how many of you are finding yourself here under probably the, some of the greatest stress of your life, resorting to some things that you tried to give up years ago, like smoking, um, more drinking, or maybe some of you po use positive coping mechanisms like exercise. Um, and maybe you exercise more than you've ever done because you really need that to manage the excess stress load of medical school. And there are individual differences in that. So um, let me get my pointer. So individual differences, 
Some of you will have different, different genetic predispositions to experience or have a more sensitive stress response than others. But ultimately, that leads to what we were talking about before, this process of allostasis, allostasis, and essentially we adapt. And then overall, if that is prolonged, then it causes allostatic overload. So again, we have normal stress response. That's not so bad. If there's a big stressor, a big fear, we respond. But the problem is if there's too many stressors, too many fears for too long, then we have allostatic overload. So some of these um, stress scales that have been developed for research purposes, I use these just to point out that stressors don't necessarily have one valence, negative. They can be positive, too. So any life change, even getting married, is a stressor, not just because of throwing the big party and spending all the money, but just a big life change can be a stressor. And so on the scale, the biggest stressor is, of course, a death of someone very close to you, that that's a real loss. But if you look, something like marriage is still a 50, which is a lot higher than a mortgage. Um, so these things, though, even positive things, can also be stressful for people. Um, and it's just really just big transitions that are, um, tend to get our stress response system going. So we've all perceived things differently. Some of you might have this fear of heights a little more than others, fear of sharks, fear of going under the water. But this is what we all fear the most, what keeps us going, why you're sitting in this room today, because you, you are afraid of these. Um, this is, it's a good one to be afraid of. It gets you, it gets you learning all this stuff, right? Um, it motivates you. Now we're back to our system, right? You all know the system well because I showed it to you this morning in emotions lecture. I'm adding a few pieces here, which is what we're going to focus on today. After the hypothalamus, what happens after the hypothalamus? So we talked about the amygdala, new stressors coming in, how the amygdala, this is the basolateral amygdala, sends messages to the central amygdala, which then initiates the hypothalamic stress response. So we're going to zero in on this. But I will take a moment to address a question the student had earlier, why I had the hippocampus there. The hippocampus is not necessarily a focus, and you won't have to, to know exactly the role of the hippocampus in fear learning for this particular module course. But in general, um, I want you to understand that the hippocampus helps track the context. So where something was deemed threatening. If a mouse is shocked in one room, right, but not in another room, so is shocked in room B, and not sh shocked in room A, then the mouse will not fear room A. The hippocampus will help track the safe room and the threatening room. And the hippocampus, when damaged, for example, in PTSD, and we'll talk about how stress can damage the hippocampus, people might overgeneralize their fear to context where it's not appropriate. For example, a military veteran had um, a lot of stress in combat and comes back, and it's not the battlefield, it's maybe a fair, a, um, a simple outing with family, and yet the environment, he's overgeneralized the fear response and the vigilance required for being on the battlefield to an inappropriate environment. So the hippocampus tracks the context of fear learning. So I just wanted to add that because some of you had questions about what is the hippocampus doing. But we know what the amygdala is doing. It's routing the, the, the stimuli to our hypothalamus to get us to respond to the threat. And we know what the ventromedial prefrontal cortex is doing. It's saying, this is not threatening. Don't be crazy. Turn it off. It's irrational. You don't need this fear. Turn it off. That's what the ventromedial prefrontal cortex is saying. So when you, but when you, let's say it's a real fear. Let's say there is a lion and it is chasing you and you need to run. 
you do need the hypothalamus to kick off your stress response. So what is a stress response? Now we're going to describe those two systems, the sympathetic nervous system and the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Those are the two wings, the two branches that you'll need to know. And you already spent a lot of time in the autonomic nervous system, so you guys are experts in the anatomy of the autonomic nervous system. Now we're going to talk about that relevant, the relevance of that for the stress response and for physicians to understand the impact of stress on health. So we can have an emotional stressor. We can have a physical stressor. And they're both going to get routed to the hypothalamus. And here's where we get that branching. So the sympathetic output, right? We have sympathetic nervous system output, which then leads and also to the adrenal medulla to the release of norepinephrine and epinephrine, the catecholamines, right? And then we also have the HPA. And we're going to spend a little bit more time with both of those, but just to give you an overview, so the hypothalamus also initiates the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis response to the adrenal cortex to release the corticoids, the cortisol. So the catecholamines are the sympathetic nervous system, and that is released by adrenal medulla. The adrenal cortex releases corticoids, cortex, corticoids, just a kind of mnemonic there. So if the HPA axis is initiated, then you have the release of the cortisol, the corticoids. So both the stress itself and the response can be problematic, again, especially if it's prolonged. So for the sympathetic nervous system, we know that the innervation of tissues in the sympathetic nervous system is a bit crude. Okay, so it's like a 1 to 30 ratio where you hit a ganglion and then you get all these organs from one ganglion, right? So it's kind of a nonspecific crude um, stress response. For pupil dilation, it's a little less. So, so when we get stressed, we have our pupils get enlarged, like the little girl in the video earlier when she sees the bubbling water and you see her pupils. The filmmaker used that because he knows that, that that pupil dilation is a sign of fear. Our fight or flight has kicked in. So we have an increase in heart rate. We have an increase in blood pressure and in blood sugar. Why? Because we need all that to run away from the lion. So we need all that blood sugar. We need quick energy and we need high blood pressure so we can actually fuel our muscles as they get us out of threat's way, out of danger's way. So of course, we need the blood flow to the skeletal muscles to help us run. We need that epinephrine and norepinephrine to give us the energy, to give us the acuteness, because the norepinephrine and epinephrine is going to help our brain. It's going to give us all the, the fine, high resolution to say, what is happening? What do I need to pay attention to? So all of you, when you're really stressed before an exam, it sucks because you, you can't sleep and all that. But at the same time, you pay more attention. That's what these exams do. They get, your, they get your response going to some of that. It's good because then you get a little bit more clarity. You're focusing. You're distinguishing details that maybe if no one pushed you, it all kind of muddled together, right? So the stress, the norepinephrine, helps you get mental clarity when, but up to a point. Again, too much, and then it's self-defeating. But up to a point, you need that clarity. So you have epinephrine for heightened alertness and decreased neurovegetative function. So some of you, when you're really stressed, you might find that you don't even want to eat. You can't sleep. Because who wants to have a nice meal and take a nap when you're being chased by a lion? Okay? You, you want to run. So it shuts down your vegetative functions when you're in a state of stress. You also need more oxygen. You need to breathe more. So your bronchi relax to facilitate increased oxygen to your muscle tissues. And then the opposite side of that is the relax and renew, the parasympathetic 
My, I love this parasympathetic nervous system. It's your best friend when you want to turn down the stress response, right? So deep breaths help you kick in the parasympathetic nervous system and relax and renew, rest and digest. All of the functions that help you kind of get back to your, set, your homeostasis, your set point. So it's a little bit more localized action in terms of one to one, one to two ratio. Pupil constriction rather than dilation. The heart decreases in heart rate and blood pressure. And you have an increase in your vegetative. So now you can eat again, now you can sleep again because there's no more lions, it's all over. The stress has passed. And your lungs um, essentially can have more constriction. We don't need as much oxygen anymore in our muscles. Um, and this is especially nice for men. When you're relaxed, it promotes erection. So all the good stuff in life comes back in the parasympathetic nervous system. So HPA, let's talk a little bit more about that. We just covered the SNS, one branch. The APA is the other branch. So the hypothalamus releases corticotropin releasing factor, CRF which then stimulates the pituitary gland, which releases ACTH, adrenocorticotropic hormone. And that stimulates the adrenal cortex to release cortisol, right? So the cortisol can be a good thing when we're under stress, can be a bad thing when the stress is prolonged. We have a feedback mechanism. So under high stress, we run away from the lion, we escape. We're happy, we shut down the stress response, feedback, right? So we get negative feedback to the hypothalamus that says, okay, it's done, it's over. Kick in, eat, sleep, have your erections, everything's back to normal. So this regulation of the hypothalamus access can result in some problems. So too much cortisol is a common finding across many different disorders. Anxiety disorder, no surprise, too much cortisol. Depression, again, no surprise, high levels of cortisol. PTSD, this is a little bit problematic because there's high and low, abnormally high, and some studies abnormally low cortisol in PTSD. And that's because they believe some of the feedback mechanisms are screwed up in PTSD and that you actually have less sensitivity in the hypothalamus to this feedback, so it's hard to shut down the stress response. So they're essentially up stressed all the time um, and so they have, it's, it's, over time, there can be dysfunction in their too high or too low cortisol. Child abuse, history of child abuse is associated with high rates, high levels of cortisol. And even professional burnout. So this is relevant for you guys. Years and years of being a physician, why isn't it fun anymore? Why isn't it exciting anymore? Too many hours working, that's just burnout. And that's a common thing among physicians and is also associated with high cortisol and higher risk for all of the disorders we'll talk about in this lecture. So what are some individual differences? Genetics, sometimes what you're born with, some people will have more resilience to stress than others. Um, so there are genotypic variations in certain people might, you've heard this term type A, right? I've heard stories about how type A was discovered by an interior designer who noticed in this cardiologist's office that all of his patients essentially were sitting on the front edge of the seats, wearing out the front of the seats. And so the interior designer said, what kind of patients do you have? They're wearing, I mean, nobody who, who sits this way? Type A, people who were worried, type A personalities, who then end up in a cardiologist's office because they have high risk for cardiac events, cardiac disease. So type A personality, high strung, every single one of you in the room is probably to some extent type A if you're here. Because <laughs> you have to care, you have to want to work hard, you have to want to do well. So, Unfortunately, 
type A is associated with higher stress and um, a more sensitive stress response system. Some people are born with a shorter form of the serotonin transporter. That increases their stress response and makes them more vulnerable to certain diseases like alcoholism and depression. Interestingly, go back to your emotions lecture, if you could pick a finding, so where do you think people with this shorter serotonin transporter, the shorter form of this, this genetic anomaly, where do you think they would fail in terms of uh, fear conditioning experiment? What part would they not be able to do well? They wouldn't be able to form the extinction memory as well. So patients or people with this genetic anomaly actually show less optimal extinction learning, right? And more abnormalities in that ventromedial prefrontal to amygdala pathway. So the pathway that supports, maintains the extinction memory, which is don't be afraid, this is not scary, this is over, it's done, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Turn down the amygdala, that pathway is essentially less efficient in people with a shorter form of this transporter. So they have worse extinction learning. Now, individual differences in your experience, and this is something that we can't, as doctors, you're not gonna be able to help. Some patients just had a really bad childhood. Um, some patients had a good childhood and they have really good coping mechanisms. I was talking to a student whose child has difficulty sleeping. I was saying, you model very early on how to respond to stress. Simply doing deep breathing, teaching a child how to cope with stress from a very young age is going to take them and carry them the rest of their life. In the sense, they learn not to be afraid of fear, they not be afraid of threats, but how they can actively cope with it. So if a parent, um, let's say uh, a child is having um, an, an, uh, not able to sleep, they've gotten themselves all worked up, and the mother gets all worked up, and the parents get all worked up, and everyone's all worked up, and no one knows how to calm themselves down, right? That's not very helpful. If one person models, this is how you calm yourself down. This is how you, so if a child, or a child has something happen at school that's not so good and they're really stressed out, and the parent teaches them, take a deep breath, this will pass, this, is a, a, it's, it's, this happens in life, these are things are normal, but essentially if you, you just need to know how to calm yourself, remember you just do a good job, keep doing what you're doing, you're perfect just like you are, you're wonderful. These kind of comments that just help soothe, and then the child internalizes that. And they well, I am good. I am perfect. I can get past this. this. This will go. This, you know, everything good and bad passes. And so I will get through this too. These things are mo they, modeled by parents and internalized by kids. So they know how to handle the stress. And then the greatest learning is in the first nine months. Um, early trauma or abuse is associated with an increased stress response. Uncertainty in food supply. So children who aren't essentially are starving or hungry, they will have a more sensitive stress response system. And children who are in enriched environments, who have lots of toys and books and, and lots of um, what we call early enrichment, that actually serves as a protective factor against stress. So what are some of the consequences? Um, we talked about that negative feedback loop. So when you have the stress response, essentially the cortical cortisol um, comes back and shuts down the stress response in the hypothalamus. And that works when it's a nice acute stress with a clear ending. But what the problem is when it's a, a chronic stress with no clear ending. Um, oh, I just, there's a German phrase I'm trying to remember. It's, it's, better to have, it's better to end in disaster than to have a disaster without end. That's essentially what this is, is you want to have something, an, a stress just to end, to just be over and move on. But when it keeps going and going and going, um, like a bad relationship, it's right, better just to end it 
and move on, but then to keep going and keep have your stress response being kicked in. So both acute and chronic stress can trigger the stress response, but it's the prolonged stress that's the problem. So what happens over time, the first stage is the alarm stage. That's when our adaptive responses are mobilized. In this case, you might have some immune enhancement to actually, um, if, you, if you cut yourself, that's a little bit of a stress. You might have the inflammatory response, some immune enhancement. But then over time, there's actually immunocompromise. The organism attempts to cope by utilizing its resources. So it says, don't pay attention to like healing your wounds. Run, there's a lion, you know? <laughs> you have to get out of there. But over time, um, as an exhaustion phase of stress, then that prolonged state of immunocompromise is gonna make us really vulnerable to diseases. I don't know if you guys have a kind of a system shutdown after an exam where you get funny things like skin rashes or cold sores. That happens sometimes when people's essentially been in, they've been in a state of immunocompromise and so they're more vulnerable. So here are four types of allostatic load and I wanna go through each of these because um, they illustrate different types of maladaptive stress responding. So one, the repeated hit, so this is a normal stress response. So you see we have the stressor and our stress response system kicks in and then we relax. That's a normal stress. This is when a child is growing up in an abusive home or the, um, people are refugees in countries where they're being mistreated um, or they're trying to escape a country. When you have a repeated hit, it's, it's not fair. This is just some people are born and they don't choose where they're born, but society gives them repeated hits. And that causes an abnormal stress response because it's too much too often. It's more than our bodies are designed to handle. So that's repeated hits, where each time it's a real threat and our body responds, but as soon as we come back to baseline, we get hit again. And then come back to baseline and get hit again. That's a maladaptive repeated hits. But it's not maladaptive because the system's maladaptive. It's maladaptive because your body's not. It's, it's, it's more maladaptive because the world is hitting you again and again with a stressor. Lack of adaptation is when you're supposed to adapt over time to a stressor and get more used to it so you become accustomed and so you don't get as much of a rise. So your first exam here, you may have been like, ah, oh, it's crazy, this is such a stressor. And then over time, maybe it gets a little easier. By the time you get to the USMLE, you're a pro at this. You've done this so many times, right? That's, a, that's an ideal scenario, is you get so used to it, it be, you become so accustomed to doing this over and over again, that you train your system to not get way too excited. Maybe just enough excitement, but not way too excited where you can't think. So that's when people don't do that, when they don't show some adaptation, then this is a maladaptive response as well. So lack of adaptation to what is actually not a life-threatening stressor. And then this one, a prolonged response, is when you essentially have a stress response that doesn't shut down. It just stays up. So this is someone who gets stressed and they stay stressed. They don't shut it off. So that feedback mechanism to the hypothalamus to say, shut it down, is not working, so they stay stressed. And that can happen over time. If there's chronic abuse, if there's some dysfunction repeated over time in the stress response system, then someone is simply inefficient in shutting it down and it might stay up for a while. And then you have, this, this, these people don't really exist because they got eaten by a lion a long time ago. Um, if you don't have a stress response system, essentially you die. You have to have it. You have to respond to a stressor and mobilize your resources to deal with it. So this is an inadequate response. So let's test your knowledge on those four different categories. 
So pay attention here. This is African American, not Grenadian. The Grenadian police officers are not so bad. <laughs> They're kind of nice, but. So in this scenario, and this is taking into account cultural context, so it's a particular time and place, but it may affect some of your patients if you're practicing in the US, where there are repeated hits, where um, someone, each time they get pulled over is a real threat. Because, whether it's perceived or real, the truth is there's enough in the media to convince any American that there is indeed a real threat when an African-American is pulled over. So the threat, the fear response is real. And so this idea, and this is why it's a tricky differential, because this lack of adaptation would assume that the threat is essentially something you should just get used to. But when in actuality, the threat carries um, a certain amount of real danger each time. So that's why the answer here would be repeated hits and not necessarily lack of adaptation. So I want that to be clear. Again, it's if, the, if there's a real stressor that's coming at someone over and over and over again in life, and it has nothing to do with their biology, has nothing to do with their stress, I mean, it's just the, the fact that they happen to be born somewhere where their society throws them a repeated stressor, that that's called a repeated hit. And that that can end up being as much of a stressor in terms of immunocompromise and all of the health risks associated with chronic stress as any other allostatic overload condition. So for patients who grow up under these types of repeated hits, it's important to be aware that that might contribute to some of the higher rates of heart disease, metabolic disorders we see in certain groups or populations or minority groups in certain countries where they may have been under a higher level of stress. So again, short stress, no problem. Long stress, problem. Short stress, a lion's chasing us. We gotta mobilize energy. And then when it's over, it's over. But too much of that, we get fatigue, muscle wasting, insulin resistance. Why insulin resistance? Because we're telling essentially the insulin, we don't want it to do its job because we want the, we want the, 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 the fat, we want all the sugar, the good blood sugar in our blood so we can use it quickly. We don't want the insulin to store it away. We wanna use it quickly. Okay, so we need, and, that's, and that can cause a problem over time. And increased cardiovascular or cardiopulmonary tone can lead to hypertension when it's a chronic stress. Suppression of digestion, gosh, this is really small, I'm sorry for that. Um, but we will go through each of these in a little more detail when, time, when we talk about specific diseases. So suppression of digestion can lead to essentially to ulcers over time. Suppression of growth can lead to psychogenic dwarfism. And so extreme stressors early in childhood can actually lead to a lack of growth, can impact growth hormone. So children who are raised in extreme neglect, poverty, um, no physical contact like we talked about in the attachment section of the development lectures, where children who don't have strong attachments, physical touch, nurturing early on, can actually show less growth. And there's an extreme example of this. You know the story of Peter Pan. You know how he was essentially a boy who never grew up. Well, the author of Peter Pan has a horrible story. His mother, he had an older brother who was more the favorite of the family, who was killed. And his mother took to the bed. The father was completely neglecting him. And the mother only, wanted, only cared about the older son. So every time he would show up, she'd only say, oh, you're, where is Dave? Is Dave there? Oh, it's only you. He was just only you. So he, essentially, he was, 
he internalized the idea that you shouldn't grow. So he was in, in essentially a home, a condition. His, he had the, the context in which he grew up was one of which extreme deprivation. Um, his parents only liked the other son. And so he essentially stopped growing. And as an adult, was like four foot five or something, the stories go, and he wrote the story of Peter Pan. So psychogenic dwarfism is a real thing. It can impact growth hormone, and people and children under extreme stress will simply not grow as much. So you have suppression of reproduction, um, suppression of ovulation, impotency, loss of libido over time with chronic stress. Because who needs to have babies when you're running from a lion, right? This is something that is not important when you're under acute stress, but in time, chronic stress can impair something that actually is really important. So you can have um, suppressed immunos um, immunosuppression under acute stress, but in long-term stress, that can lead to disease resistance. You can have altered plasticity and thresholds and brain structure, but over time that can lead with chronic stress to neural degeneration. And you can have alterations in sensory processing thresholds that are good in the moment because we need all that um, heightened acuity for short-term stressors, but over time can actually impair cognition. And so this is a summary of all the different ways in which what's good for running away from a lion is really not so good when you're just stuck in traffic or having to take lots of tests and stuff um, over time, and every time you finish one, there's a new one. So stress in the immune system. We know that, um, we've talked about this, the chronic stress is associated with immunosuppression. These are just a couple of things that, um, that, that drive home that point, that excess glucocorticoids can actually impair the development of killer T cells and B cells and reduce antibodies. And that also to point out that chronic stress over time can paradoxically lead to an increased risk of autoimmune disorders. Metabolic disorders, um, um, you can look at these slides in your own time to go through more detail because I've already mentioned why. So when essentially we need the quick energy, quick blood glucose in the moment for running and for getting away from a threat, but over time that can lead to too much fat in the bloodstream, too much sugar in the bloodstream, and decreased organ efficiency and give us higher risk for type 2 diabetes, coronary artery disease, or metabolic syndromes. And then sleep. Again, no, no brainer there. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing because when we're stressed, we don't get enough sleep. And when we don't get enough sleep, that's actually a stressor as well. How unfair is that? Um, so reduced sleep duration can lead to increased weight, obesity, blood pressure, parasympathetic tone is increased, increased cortical and insulin. So all of this bad stuff, right? Again, get more sleep is the message there because your body really needs it. And then for reproduction, women produce less um, hormones like follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone. For men, um, stress over, excess stress over time can lead to sexual dysfunction, such as impotence. So essentially, they can't maintain an erection. And here's the kicker. So you really, in order to have an erection, you need the sympathetic nervous system. I mean, so you need the parasympathetic nervous system to maintain an erection, but you need the sympathetic nervous system to actually orgasm. So there's this intricate interplay. And when stress is, so when you have chronic stress, essentially you can have not only impotence, but also premature ejaculation because the stress response system might actually kick in too much, the sympathetic nervous system, so men might ejaculate too early if there's abnormalities in the stress response. And then decreased progesterone in women can lead to osteoporosis. And cardiovascular disease, again, this is all stuff that is pretty, um, it's well known in the press and the media that we know stress impairs our vasculature, that pumping of blood 
through the arteries over time might be good for an acute stress, but over time wears and tears at the arteries, makes little rips, and they turn to inflammation, and inflammation leads to scar tissue, and then you have arteries that are not as flexible, adaptive, and that can cause problems over time. Some people have what's called a broken heart syndrome, where they might have a response to an acute stressor and actually have a heart attack, but that's rare, and they actually have a name for it in, in Japan. And so we know that it can lead to arthrosclerosis, impeded oxygen flow, which can lead to a heart attack, chest pain, cell death, muscle lapse. All of that is essentially what we, we have known is associated with chronic stress, not acute stress, chronic stress. And then finally, these health disparities that I mentioned, which essentially show that people who are raised in an environment where they may be at more risk for chronic stressors might experience higher risks of disease. And I just want you to think about in your patients how those higher rates of stress might impact their chronic diseases. And finally, I'll let you go by, not yet, because I don't want you to leave without thinking about 10 minutes today that you're going to spend. I don't how much time you have, need to study. I understand everyone has the same stressors on them right now, which is to study for exams, but you will spend 10 minutes today down-regulating your stress response using your coping mechanism. If you don't have one, get some. <laughs> Breathing, <laughs> exercise, okay? Use it at least 10 minutes every day. Thank you. Hi, I have a question about that clicker. I don't get it, why it would be, it was... Um, Repeated hits and not uh, lack of adaptation. Yes, I don't get it. Tell me what you don't get in it. Okay, so because I 